Welcome to Season 2 of Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. On Straight Talk, we're featuring in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers as we talk about the latest vintages of the world's best wines. We'll also be answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more. Did you think you were going to be a winemaker at that point, or was that still a ways off for you? Honestly, James, I had no concept of what a winemaker was. or I mean, in fact, the only thing I remember that night is saying to my mother, well, if wine tastes this good... Why have you, you know, made it taboo? <laughs> <laughs> I'm James Molesworth, Senior Editor and Special Projects Director for Wine Spectator. And as always, I'm joined by our Podcast Director, Rob Taylor. Welcome back, James. And congratulations and thank you for getting picked up for another season of Straight Talk. Mm-hmm. We're changing things up a little bit this season. But as usual, we've got a winemaking superstar on the program today. Yeah, don't thank me. Thank our listeners who have been tuning in. We really appreciate them. And they're going to get a special interview today with Paul Hobbs. He's really one of California's top winemakers. He's got a 40-plus year career. There's a lot to know about Paul. I couldn't put it all into an intro, but just safe to say he was on the original winemaking team when Opus One debuted in the 1979 vintage. He's gone on to develop his own winery up in Sebastopol. He produces some of the best Cabernet, Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay in California, and he's a great guy. And there's a lot more to learn about him, and we're going to get to all of that in the interview. Can't wait for that. James, you've been in California for most of the year so far. Catch us up on what you've been doing since last season. Well, January, February, March, I am out here for most of the time. It's a pretty quiet time in the vineyards. It's raining a lot. In fact, we had that big storm just pass through. Uh, Los Angeles, of course, got hit really hard. Northern California, not so bad. And one of the questions I get is, what happens to the vineyards uh, when you get those huge, windy rainstorms coming through? And the reality is, not much. The vines are pretty resilient. They're close to the ground. They're dormant. A lot of them have been pruned already. And this is the water they're going to get for the year, pretty much. So they suck that all up. Uh, The wind doesn't really affect them too much. There's a lot of trees down. There's branches, things like that. Roads are a little washed out. But the vineyards themselves are in pretty good shape. And what's also interesting to note is with the trend towards going to permanent cover crop these days, all of that moisture is getting soaked up very easily by the sort of soft, pillowy soil that you get when you use cover crops. So there's not a lot of runoff. There's not a lot of wasted water. And this is proving really beneficial as California goes through these uh, typically dry seasons, which doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime soon. Well, I'm happy to hear that. They, they really know what they're doing out there, it seems. We also have our March 31st issue on newsstands, and I know that that cover story is near and dear to your heart. Yeah, that's our colleague Kristen Beeler, who's got her first major Roan cover story out in this issue, and it's on the Gigal family. Uh, as you know, I used to cover the Roan, and I handed it over to Kristen a little over a year ago, and she's jumped right in with a really great feature on the multi-generational family winery that is E. Gigal. And they've got a new Lala wine. So there are now four Lala wines wow. coming instead of three. Um, there's a lot to talk about with the Gigals and the Rhone. And she's got her Rhone report on the 2020 and 2021 vintages. And we also have Mitch Frank coming on a little bit later to catch us up on the latest news in the industry. But uh, James, why don't you uh, set us up for this Paul Hobbs interview? Yeah, we had Paul Hobbs in the studio here in Napa. It's always nice to have them in person. Uh, We chatted for about an hour. He and I go way back uh, since I've been at Spectator for so long. I've been covering his wines for over 20 years. We're going to talk about his wine epiphany, his early days in California working for Mondavi and that uh, initial Opus One vintage, and his career getting up to uh, Sebastopol and setting up his, uh, his prominent winery there now. Some really great excerpts coming up here from Paul Hobbs. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much, James. Good to be here. It's good to have you. This is your second time on the show. We chatted with you briefly on our Robert Mondavi episode way back when. Seems like forever ago. You and I have known each other for 20 plus years. 
thanks in part to uh, your time down in South America, which I know was very formative for you. And we'll talk about that. How come your hair doesn't turn gray? <laughs> <laughs> it's the wine. Uh, you're working in the Finger Lakes, which I also cover. And, um, and of course, now I'm on top of you here with uh, Cabernet and Pinot Noir in California. So you and I go, go way back. And I've heard this story before, but I think a lot of our listeners probably have not. It's always one of my favorite questions to start with, which is, what was your wine epiphany? And I know your wine epiphany started with a Dixie cup. <laughs> <laughs> True enough. Yeah. 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 Uh, this was way back in 1969, January, mm -hmm. on a winter's night, my father came to the family table. But before he did that, I should set this up by saying that we were teetotalers. My father and mother, well, my mother made a pact with my father that there would be no alcoholic beverages served at the family table. Mm -hmm. And so that was my childhood. We were a farming family and we were farming mostly orchard type fruit trees, that kind of thing. Right. And my dad felt that uh, that business model was a commodity business and he didn't really feel that that was going to carry us with a big family. And I'm the second oldest of 11 children, mostly boys. My mother wanted girls, but that's another thing. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> At any rate, my dad started making trips to the Finger Lakes and befriended mainly two gentlemen, Herman Veemer and Dr. Constantine Frank. Mm -hmm. And they got him excited about the idea of putting in vineyards. So my father thought, well, to get his son, me, interested in helping him plant the vineyards, that he would break up things a little bit. So he went up to a, a place called uh, Premier Liquor, just in time to one in New York near Buffalo, consulted the wine expert how to put wine on the family table without his wife's radar detecting it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how the Dixie Cups appeared. Okay. So my father appeared with his tray with yellow-orange liquid inside and asked us to try it. And uh, my mother said it's the best juice she'd ever tasted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it completely befuddled her. She, right. she thought she was onto some beautiful apricot-peach kind of combination. And I, at any rate, that's, that turned out to be a 1962 Chateau Ikem. Well, it's nice that uh, you put it in the Riedel Dixie Cup where <laughs> 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 your dad did. Um, did you think you were going to be... A winemaker at that point, or was that still a ways off for you? Honestly, James, I had no concept of what a winemaker was. Or, I mean, in fact, I, the only thing I remember that night is saying to my mother, "Well, if wine tastes this good, why have you, you know, made it taboo?" <laughs> <laughs> and that was not a really appropriate question at that particular moment. But, right. but um, no, that didn't come until much later. In fact, I was uh, on my way to medical school. And in my final semester at Notre Dame, I took two plant courses, one in plant physiology and the other in botany. And the botany professor, Dr. James McGrath, had worked under Brother Timothy at the novitiate for a period of time. And so he had a wine appreciation course on campus. And he found out that I was planting vineyards for my father, asked me if I would be a part of his wine appreciation course. I told him no, that my mother wouldn't allow that. Mm. And that kind of puzzled him, like you're planting wine, wine grapes. Yeah, right. <laughs> so basically um, what happened is that I gave him my dad's phone number. He, he rang up my dad and he said, sure, he can be a part of your wine appreciation course. Just don't tell his mother. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really my father and Father McGrath that kind of came together to get me basically pre-enrolled at UC Davis and Fresno. All this behind my back. And... Uh, it wasn't until graduation that both men approached me and suggested, or kind of told me what they were up to, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and in those days, of course, we're talking early 70s now, it wasn't really, and basically given my father, it wasn't like you're going to say no. 
So Forlow Med School, try wine. Because my dad wanted me to come back, basically, and build a winery and, and make wine and keep all the family together. That was his motive. Right. So you're the second oldest of 11 children growing up in uh, upstate New York. Their family is switching from apples to grapes at a time when the Finger Lakes was not really a wine-producing region of, of note. I mean, there was the right. tailors and that sort of stuff, the, the, the jug wine stuff. Yep. You get kind of pushed into UC Davis by your dad, who's going to need your help. And so you hit UC Davis in the early 1970s, mid-1970s. And that's got to be a really interesting and formative time for you, not just from the schooling perspective, but some of your fellow classmates at that time, right? There were some really, it was intimidating, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I, I mean, most people laugh at this, but I was far more intimidated by going to study wine than going to med school. I was all prepared mm. mentally for that. But I thought, you know, to go to wine and then to get to Davis and then... An, my classmates, some of the big names, you know, that already knew from New York you know, with what little I knew about wine. Mm-hmm. So how am I going to compete in this environment? But all in all, things worked out. I worked under Dr. Vernon Singleton. I studied basically the oak extracts, comparing French to American oak. And that landed me a position at Robert Mondavi in 1977. I worked an internship in 78. I joined them full time. And at that point, Zelma Long is there. I think David Ramey is there. I mean, it's it's an all-star Team. All star cast, <laughs> yeah, um, and you even worked on the 1979 debut vintage of Opus. Yes. So Robert Mondavi must have liked you. Well, um, you know the funny <laughs> thing is, is that of the winemaking team, I was the only technically trained, and there were, there were four of us, and I was the youngest, of course, because I had just joined the team. Mm-hmm. Well, basically, Mr. Mondavi put me there only because of my chemistry. I was an apprentice winemaker, knew nothing really. And so he thought I was going to impress the French, you know, with all I knew about <laughs> polyphenols and the chemistry and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, well, you know, being an Italian, he didn't understand the French probably. <laughs> <laughs> so he made a miscalculation, but it was good for me. Uh, you know, worked out great. And I got to sit with Lucien Sino, who was the first winemaker for mm-hmm. Baron Philippe Rochelle. As you were making your way in these uh, formative years for you, did you feel like you had a a sense of winemaking and like your own style or what you were leaning into at that point? Honestly, James, I wish I could say yes to that question, (laughs) but no. You know, I was, uh, this was a very new world for me. And frankly, I got a a tremendous education at Robert Mondavi. And some people would say, why are they paying you? You should be paying them. Mm -hmm. And they probably in some ways were right. Right. You know, it was just like a university or a postdoc, you might say. I realized, frankly, at Mondavi, I had no upward mobility because Tim Mondavi owned that spot. Right. And the only way to kind of tip the scale there was to marry Marcy, and she was already taken. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you spend a few years at CIMI, and you also wind up down in Argentina, which I know this is a big moment for you when you get to Argentina, and yeah. a gentleman named Nicola Cateno, who we both know well. Yes. Um, that really may have set your course even as much as the time at UC Davis and Mondavi, didn't it? I would say it was one of the most transformative and inflection points in my career. And it was scariest, even Mm -hmm. scarier than going to Davis initially. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, because it was all unknown, all of Argentina's reputation at at that particular moment was in the basically very poor. Yeah, we're talking mid-1980s now, late 1980s. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I made my first trip basically to Chile in 1988. And then we ended up driving over the mountains, we being Jorge Catena, Nicholas's younger brother, mm-hmm. who was a classmate uh, and friend of mine while I was at Davis. And um, 
Yeah, I got thrown out of Chile because I invited Jorge, as a matter of fact. So <laughs> yeah, right. I didn't realize the political sensibilities, you know, yeah. and the angst between the two countries and border disputes, that kind of thing. So my host was furious that I invited Katena. But that worked out well. So Nicholas's theory was, well, if we can prove to the world that we can make great whites, they'll automatically accept we can do reds. But Malbec was something that no producer seemed to be interested in, and Nicholas among them. So that was something that, that I sort of contributed to working uh, in the back corner of the winery, <laughs> if you might. might well, that's a story behind that. When, um, when you're working down there and you're lending that technical expertise, obviously your eyes are opening up to the ocean of vineyards that was down there at that time. I mean, Katana himself owns thousands of... 6,000 hectares yeah. at that time. When did you think you began to sort of synergize the vineyard and the lab? And I don't mean that you were only in the lab pejoratively, but that was a, sort of the matter of fact of coming out of Davis and the Mondavi mm-hmm. machine in the yeah. 70s. Really, vineyard guys didn't talk to winemakers and, and vice versa. And when did that shift and when did that unity between the two sides, you think, start to play out? And did you see that in Argentina from your experience there? Well, that was actually a beef of mine at Mondavi and... You know, Zama was of that school as well, where the vineyard and grape growing was separated. And unlike Europe, where a true vigneron oversees both, right. and the vineyard's a very integral part in the winemaking, Davis and basically the California model put them in two separate camps, and one didn't really cross into the other. And that was one of my frustrations, being a farm boy. I mean, I just wanted to be in the vineyard at least half as much as it was in the winery. So that was part of the freedom I was looking for, to break out of that mold. And Argentina helped provide that. Mm -hmm. And essentially, in the mornings, I would spend all morning seeing vineyards. And then we'd have lunch, the traditional long lunch. And then we'd work in the winery in the afternoon in Argentina. I did that for the first two weeks in 1989. That sort of got things kicked off. And I liked the rhythm of that. That just made a lot of sense. So let's bring it forward a little bit. Now you come back to America you leave Simi, obviously, um, because you got too many fingers and too many pies. You're in Argentina and you're starting to, you want to do your own thing. And I believe 91 is when you found Paul Hobbs Wines. Yes. So talk a bit about that because you start with Cabernet, Chardonnay, and Pinot. Cabernet and Chardonnay certainly made sense at that time. Pinot, maybe not so much. That right. Was, it was not the thing it is today, but talk yeah. about how, how you, you know, brought that experience into your own project. Well, this worked out nicely because Nicholas needed help. And the fortunate thing was... He was in the Southern Hemisphere, which, you know, allowed me to juxtapose these two different harvests and and sort of build a schedule that would work to look after him, but at the same time, start my own winery. And so Nicholas became an investor. That was part of my deal with him. If I'm going to help you, I I need a little help to start my wineries because they're very capital-intensive kind of things. I wanted to make Pinot Noir, and Simi had no interest in doing that. And essentially, I had made, on a bike ride a century bike ride out into West County Sonoma. Believe it or not, all the years I worked to see me, I'd really, it took me three or four years before I finally got out to the West. (laughs) And there I discovered that, well, that's actually a little bit like upstate New York, the the area I grew up with all the apple farming and Sebastopol and so on. This place felt really good to me. And then I I began to see, I knew about the Duttons, of course, and uh, the work that Warren Dutton was doing with planting Pinot Noir. And there were others, too, like Dellinger and Kistler and so on. Mm -hmm. So I was really interested in the region. And so this is my opportunity to break out and make Pinot Noir. Interesting. So now with with 40-plus years of experience, 
built on a very intense sort of lab related in the winery focus first, and then your, your vineyard experience, which I know you you find them, they, they go hand in hand as they should. What I always find interesting is when difficult vintages come along, particularly in Bordeaux, they often say, well, we couldn't have made a, a good wine in a vintage like that 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Do you think in the opposite way, something like 23, which is a very unique climactic event or vintage in Napa, could you have made wines that look as great as they are now 20 years ago, knowing what you knew then versus what you know now? Mm. Are, are, the, are the greater <clears throat> wines today greater than what they could yes, have been 20 years without ago? without question. Yeah, yeah. I would I would say we know so much more. I mean, the way we grow today is so much superior to what we knew even 20 years ago. So the answer to that is, yeah, I think we're much better. That's what I was hoping you were going to say, because it allows me to segue into my next question is this cycle of replanting every 20 to 25 years in Napa Valley, which is still fairly common versus farming for longevity and getting to a point where your vineyard is 50 or 60 years old and still economically viable because it's healthy. Do you see a shift there? That yes. seems to me like one of the last hurdles for Napa to, <clears throat> to get over. They've had so many replants since the 70s with phylloxera and other things along the way where that's accelerated the learning curve in mm -hmm. the vineyard. And now you can do your rootstock, your clonal selection, your row alignment, all of these things, bing, bang, boom, put something in that really ought to just be perfectly dialed in. Yeah. Why not take that to the 50-year, 60-year mark? Well, and, I, really, I really like this question. And I think when I got down to South America and I saw hey, there's vines here, they're 80 years old, and they look pretty youthful, actually. Yeah, right. And they're producing very beautiful wines. In Napa, they're, well, our model is, as you say, 25, 30, 35 years is like maximum for a vineyard. I said, well, that's because we're pushing them too hard, and we're over-farming, too much commercial farming. Today, I think, with uh, we'll call sustainable practices, but that embodies many different forms of schools of thought of farming. Well, there's a big change in Napa. I mean, I remember being in Japan... So in Tokyo, talking to a, one of the top psalms there 10, 12 years ago, and he had just come back from Napa. And so I asked him, well, what, what were your thoughts? And he said, well, I wasn't very happy. And I said, well, why? Because <laughs> that's like not something I would expect. So, well, just because there's no life in the soils. Mm -hmm. And today there's a big, big, as you know, James, a very big shift in that. And I think that's going to help a lot. And also we're just pushing the vines too hard, carrying too much crop, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, they were just beat up. So I, I'm expecting we're going to see a, a nice change in that. We're definitely a part of that team that wants to see that happen. Well, from 1,800 cases of, of wine, all from sourced vineyards to a couple tens of thousands of cases from a couple hundred acres of vines, 40-year career, first vintage at Opus One, a little Ecam and a Dixie Cup, it's been quite a ride, Paul, and I wanted to congratulate you on a career that is still going strong. As you say, I think Napa Cabernet does have a few questions to answer, but I think... We'll get um, there. You'll get there. And um, with your perspective being both in Sonoma and Napa and Pinot and Cabernet, you're really one of the, the most important figures that we have out here today, and I appreciate your time coming in to talk with us on Straight Talk. James, it's quite a pleasure. Thanks. Good to talk to you. Now, James, I know that you talked to Paul for about an hour on tape, and then you continued to talk to him even longer after the interview. I heard you two were catching up on some, some World War II history. We were nerding out there. I didn't realize it was a hot mic moment. Um, but yeah, we were nerding out on some World War II history. He's got a family connection now. And, uh, you know, he's just one of those guys who, who knows a lot about a lot of things. Uh, and so it was really fun. 
Speaking of history, World War II history, this allows me to segue, thanks, Rob, to Mitch Frank, our senior editor for news. Yeah, hey, guys. For fellow history nerds, we have the National World War II Museum down here in New Orleans, and I highly recommend it. In fact, you all could stop in before the Wine Spectator Grand Tour comes here in April. And I'll put in another vote for the World War II Museum there. I have met a few times, and it is pretty great. Well, let's get to the news, Mitch. We've got a really interesting story starting us off out of Oregon. We got a, This is almost like a black bag operation. Can you tell us what's going on here with this report that was lost, found? Now a lot of uh, people are kind of up in arms about it. What's going on in Oregon? Yeah, it's pretty ugly. Most of our readers probably know Oregon for its gorgeous Pinot Noirs. But the state is in the headlines right now for a fight over excise taxes on wine. Oregon has one of the lowest excise tax rates on beer and wine in the nation. Not surprising, since they're a home to vibrant wine and brewing industries. But for a few years now, a vocal segment has called for raising those taxes to the highest rates in the nation, arguing that it would reduce drinking by people suffering from alcoholism. Now, the legislature's gone back and forth on this. So they asked the state health authority to study the problem, and then they created a task force to weigh potential solutions. Hmm. So state health authority task force. I'm going to guess the solution was not easy, Mitch. Well, here's the problem. Before the task force even started meeting, an Oregon newspaper revealed that the health authority had commissioned a $60,000 study into the excise tax rates. And they finished it two years ago, but they never released the full results. That has both legislators and winemakers crying foul, claiming they were trying to bury it. I can imagine the furor over that. But what exactly did the study find? Well, mostly that raising excise taxes wouldn't do much. Uh, it would raise more than $200 million for the state government, and it would decrease overall wine and beer drinking by 5%. But it would reduce consumption by heavy drinkers, who this was supposed to help, by less than 1%. The researchers found that heavy drinkers simply switch to cheaper forms of alcohol. Mm -hmm. Oregon winemakers have pointed out that the state already spends very little of the excise tax money it raises now for treatment of substance abuse. So they say, why don't you try using some of that money to help heavy drinkers and those suffering from addiction? And it also seems like, and I can understand this reaction, someone didn't want these results made public. Well, the health authority has apologized, and they claim that an outbreak of a new COVID strain made them shift gears in 2021 and the study was shelved. But the critics say this reveals a fundamental disagreement between different members of the task force. Advocates of higher excise taxes believe that all drinking is harmful. Thus, any measure that cuts consumption is good. There's some vocal members of the task force who have said just that. Others believe that only heavy drinking and binge drinking is bad, and the state should be trying to help people with harmful addiction. And on top of that, this isn't the first time winemakers have been angry with the Oregon Health Authority, is it? It's not even the first time in the past few months. Uh, in December, the Health Authority had launched an ad campaign called Rethink the Drink. Now, at the time, they said this was to target heavy drinking alcohol abuse. Now, the TV commercial shows a father and daughter grocery shopping. The dad puts some beer in his cart, and then he starts looking at a bottle of wine. Uh, and the daughter asks, why can't I drink wine? And he responds, because it's not good for you. And she then says, is it good for you? Now, he could have replied with a message about responsible drinking, but instead he says, well, not really, and puts the bottle back. Mind you, he leaves the beer in the cart. 
Yeah. <laughs> the Oregon wine industry was furious, asking why the state was telling consumers that all wine, no matter the situation, is bad for you. But this messaging is working, and certain people are quite happy to stress the idea that it's not binge drinking or heavy drinking, it's all wine. Well, Mitch, thanks for that pretty impressive one-two punch of news here to get us going on our season two premiere. I hope you're having fun down there in New Orleans, but we'll see you next time. Thanks for having me, guys. Always good seeing you. That's it for the season two premiere of Wine Spectator's Straight Talk podcast. We'll be coming back to you next month with another exciting winemaker interview. And we'll also get a visit from our old friend and not physician, Dr. Vinny. Until then, don't forget to check out the March issue of Wine Spectator on newsstands now. It's got that great Gigao cover story James talked about earlier, along with the annual Rhone tasting report, plus our tasting report on Washington State reds and whites, including an interview with Pursued by Bear owner and film and TV star Kyle McLaughlin. And if you like the podcast, give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can also email us your questions at straighttalk at winespectator.com. And don't forget to follow Wine Spectator on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Threads, and X. James, take it away. Rob, thanks for helping us get through Season 2 of Straight Talk with Wine Spectator. Thanks to everyone for listening out there. This is James Molesworth once again reminding you to always share when you drink the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs>